0: Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks and I'm Jen oneill Smith and this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. <laughs>
1: so welcome to episode 51. We've crossed the threshold over 50 we've done right.
0: it now we're on our on way our, to 100 hell yeah man hell yeah we're going to get there yeah
1: love, dude this was a week was this not this was a week it was a it was a shitty week all around Yeah, the world the world's burning horrible things are happening personally it's been been a week and we'll talk about it all at the end of the podcast but like we always want to start off and be positive and get into things but you know sometimes it just sometimes your week just sucks. Sometimes it just sucks. Yeah. Okay, let's That's, get into some quickies. I'm excited to hear your quickie.
0: Well, luckily, I'll be starting out with an upbeat quickie to lift our spirits. I can't wait to hear it. So this Article was written by uh, Janet Eastman for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Sally, did Jen? You were a backpacker, hiker, outdoorsy kind of lady. Yeah, totally. What did you ever want to
1: get a tiny house? A tiny house. You know what? No, no, (laughs) I didn't. I didn't because I, uh, I've we've lived in lots of small places, and we moved from New York. And now I'm just – now I just want Wide open spaces. (laughs) I just want something. I want – I honestly, I want a huge mansion. That's what I want. (laughs) I am not going to feel bad about it. I just want you to know I don't have that. I have a small, very small house, but (laughs) –
0: That is really funny because, you know, I'm more of a city girl. Yeah. And – I, that was a half gal, half girl, Sydney girl. Um, <laughs> but I I was obsessed with tiny homes for a time. I wanted one so bad. I wanted to build one in my backyard and then use it as like a guest house or like a place I can retreat to and then use the tiny house to travel. And then when the kids go off to college, we could sell the house and just live in the tiny home. And this is what I tried to convince – My husband, and I remember we were driving from here to visit our friends who lived in Charleston. It was a five-hour drive. And over the five-hour drive, I tried to convince him to get a tiny house. And by the time we got there, by the time the five hours was up, I was like, I would never live in a tiny house with you. (laughs) I could not even handle like fi- like 5 hours in a car.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> so Ben. I don't know why I think I could put my whole life into this tiny home. <laughs> right? Like yeah, he Ben was like I had this dream of us just going like selling everything, taking like a year or two, getting an RV, driving around the country, like I could write remotely, he could teach online and we could homeschool Max or whatever. I mean, he's four so, whatever. And, and so I, I've been like really pushing this to Ben and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. And then finally he's like, Sally, you would fucking hate that. You would hate <laughs> that. You would, within two days, you would be like, I need my space from you guys. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess. Okay. I just like, I'm more like the idea of it. Yeah. Then I mean, probably- I do
0: still think the tiny homes are great, and I think that they're great for other people, and I think that they're great for the environment. I want
1: to be a tiny – how about I want to be a tiny house person? I, I would really also like to be a tiny house person, but at this point in my life, I want a Mimona mansion. <laughs> yeah, too <laughs> true. Yeah. Luckily, this tiny house person, her
0: name's Michelle Boyle, and she owns a collection of tiny houses on wheels. It's called My Tiny House Village. It's on a former Christmas tree farm near wineries in the Tulatin Valley in Oregon. And it sounds beautiful. See, this is the kind of life that I, I like envision for myself in a tiny home. But um, yes. So, like a lot of people that are trying to find things to do with their downtime right now, she was trying to find ways to be more productive. She started on a new venture called the Oregon Teardrop Rentals. So, these—have you, you ever seen a teardrop trailer? They're yes, I dream of—I dream of having one of those. Yeah. You know, a lot of people right now are having to postpone their weddings or they're getting, they're eloping in a small ceremony with hopes to have a bigger party later. But she created the teardrop rentals and what's called tiny wedding on wheels which is so cute. It's this teardrop trailer and inside is a cake, flowers, champagne. So you could hire a photographer and rent a lightweight teardrop trailer as an outdoor setting. So they'll bring the trailer to you to have what she calls a one-stop mini-money or a micro-wedding. <laughs> micro-wedding <laughs> planning is what she calls it. It's one payment, one delivery, easy setup. The only things that you have to bring are an officiant, witnesses, social distance witnesses, rings and mm-hmm. a marriage license. Apparently, in the not online recently did a survey and they found that 91% of millennials said that they preferred to get married without an audience. Huh. Is right. that interesting? Yeah. And so and that's really
1: surprising to me because It is millennials- surprising. 91 91%? Yeah. Or maybe they're like, well it's all going to be online. So yeah. I'll have so- my audience. <laughs> Yeah, true, true.
0: So it's like, and, and of course, trailer is very Instagram worthy for all you millennials out there. It's adorable. But, like, what a nice way to do something special. And, and you know, it's, I'm sure that it saves a lot of money than having a giant oh, wedding. So much stress. It's stress. If this sounds like something that you would like to do, if you have a wedding that has been postponed, or if you just decide, if you found quarantine love. If you found love in a hopeless place (laughs) and you guys are ready to seal the deal and make it forever, uh, look up Oregon teardrop rentals. I guess if you live in Oregon, but if you live, maybe this is a great idea for people that own tiny homes in different States, use your tiny homes or teardrop trailers. If you have them to maybe start a new side business, maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe that's do what it. I'll do. <laughs> so I'll, we'll post I love pictures, it. of course, they're adorable. And uh, I oh. think it's a
1: great, I think it's a great, great idea. I think it's, yeah. Great idea for non-quarantine times. Yes. Yeah. If you started a relationship in quarantine, then you would have been together now longer than Ben and I were by the time we moved to a no- new state and moved in together.
0: Isn't so. that amazing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty... That's a significant relationship at this point, and it's going to continue probably. I think a lot of people are going to have, like, quarantine-only relationships, and then when they have their first date, I want to hear
1: those stories, like, first in-person date. Oh, so you're thinking that this is – I was wondering – so I have a friend who will remain nameless who – he started casually dating this woman very early before quarantine. And they went out and hooked up, like, the night before everything shut down. Uh Uh-huh. Not, like, knowing, not like, oh, one last time. But then they're both, they both live alone. They both work at home. And they were kind of like, well, why don't we? They came to, like, an agreement of, like, let's just keep hooking up, because we're both alone. Why not? We're going to be stuck here for a while. And so they've been hooking up. But now they're spending, they've spent so much time together, that now they're in a relationship. They basically have kind of like moved in together from just like a hookup. And they were just like, you know, kind of a friends with benefits kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, now it's two and a half months later. and They're like kind of serious. They've been seeing each other exclusively almost every day of the quarantine.
0: That's what I want to like, that's a reality show I want to see. I want to see a show about people that have only been together during the quarantine. And then when we finally get back into the
1: real world, how will they survive? (laughs) I think they're going to do better than... (laughs) I think they'll do better than most couples. I think that if you've been through something intense like this and had all of this time with just you two to, like, nurture your relationship and get to know each other, that, like, that's going to be such a better foundation than, like, you know, when people are dating and always looking... There's always someone new to find. So it's like, oh, you're not really paying that much attention to any one person. Anyway, I'm just rambling now. Or maybe
0: if they... Uh, as soon as they leave quarantine, they're like, that guy's hot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I didn't realize other people. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all my options. <laughs> okay, Jen, well, my quickie is not quite so sweet, oh, but no. it is pretty funny. Okay. Uh, so, this is an article from allthingsinteresting.com by Bernadette Darren. Okay, so in 2015, a man named Roberto Cabrera of uh, Satillo, Mexico, he went viral after he posted a video of himself measuring his penis, oh, which oh, oh, oh. he claims is the biggest in the world at 18.9 inches. Ay-ay-ay. Can you even? No. Uh, so <laughs> no, and I don't want to. <laughs> so he was his hope was that he was gonna get in the Guinness Book of World Records. He said that his penis was so big that he had to keep it Constantly under wraps to avoid chafing, he added that he had to register as disabled due to the size, and that it left him unable to have sex, and that he had regular infections.
0: (laughs) Oh my god! Can you imagine if you met a guy and they told you, like, I have to tell you something: I'm disabled from having the world's largest (laughs) penis.
1: Like, fuck (laughs) (laughs) you! Nice try. Uh yeah. <laughs> and Jen, not surprisingly, it turns out, this was also a lie. <laughs> of course it was. Oh so my God. this doctor, Dr. Jesus Pablo Gilmuro, was a radiologist who so Cabrera came in for an exam and he was like, This is a unusual case. I've never seen anything like this. Of course, Cabrera refused to take off the bandages off his penis so that Muro could perform an examination. And so he was like eh. Hold on, something's up with this. So eventually, the doctor was like, let's do a CT scan. And it revealed that most of Cabrera's length was not actually his penis. And he says, with the CT, it's just that he had a very large foreskin. (gasps) Oh, yeah. He says it goes just (laughs) before it goes to just before the knee. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. Sally, this quickie, I got to (laughs) tell (laughs) you.
1: But this is uh, so bad news for Cabrera, but good news for Jonah Falcon, who is the second place who has the second largest penis because he's been telling people for years that Cabrera was a fake. He says, I think it's ridiculous and he seems kind of desperate, but no matter how big he is, it's not going to change the fact that I'm 13.5 inches. Oh my God. So that's, uh, that's my quickie about how men can't stop talking about how big their dicks are. And also, neither can Sally. Uh, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> oh, oh sorry. It's just the part that got me was that how big his foreskin was. I can't. Ugh. I'm sorry.
0: My eyes, even though I didn't see it.
1: I the know. Mental picture. And we'll post a picture. Oh, you will? Mm. Not of his penis, but oh, of it's okay. like you can show. I mean, it's like wrapped up and like uh, blurred out. But yeah. Wow! We'll
0: well, <laughs> well, oh, we're gonna get it's gonna get taken down. Oh okay. yeah! Okay. Cool, Sally, Jen, are you ready to get into a crazy story this week? Yes. Crazy.
1: Is it good? Is it super oh, crazy? It's. Is good. it just kind of crazy? All right. No. Okay. Yeah. It's
0: really crazy. I got my information from. A really amazing podcast called Already Gone. It's a two-part series. And then an, an, an episode of Scorned Love Kills. <laughs> love Scorned Love Kills. I do. And then there's another new show called, well, it's new to me. I don't think that it's new. It's called Deadly Rich. Okay. Um, so that's where I got all of my information. On January 24th of 2012, Bob and Jane uh, Bashara of Gross Point Park, Michigan, who were married for 24 years. They had plans to settle in for a nice relaxing evening of doing their taxes. Which Ooh, is just sounds so hot. fun. Just like the most normal couple that's been together for 24 years. <laughs> um, but those plans were sadly disrupted when the hours went by and Jane never showed up. Worried, Bob Ashera called all of their friends and family looking for her, but no one had seen her. And he finally calls the police to report her missing. But it being only a few hours, it was too soon to file a missing persons report, the police told him. Early the next morning of January 25th, in the middle of the night, basically, a tow truck driver was driving around Detroit uh, looking for abandoned vehicles when he came across a Mercedes SUV that it totally stuck out because this was a real uh, rough part of town where you wouldn't just see a Mercedes SUV just parked and so, and it was parked kind of in this alleyway. So he reported the plates. And then that's when he saw that the car belonged to Jane Bashara, who was reported missing. And uh-huh. so the police came and they found that the doors were unlocked and the keys were on the drive, on the floor of the driver's seat. And Jane's body was in the back seat. She had been bludgeoned to death and her neck was broken. Um, uh-huh. And now it looked like a robbery gone wrong at first glance, but it didn't make sense because her purse was in the car, her cell phone was in the car, her checkbook, and, you know, you would leave the Mercedes behind, you know what I mean? Right, um, yeah, and, as it was... And the keys in the car, and so... Another thing that was strange was she didn't have any shoes on, just socks, and the socks had leaves stuck to them, and there were no leaves in the alley where she was found, so it was clear that she had been murdered and then placed in the car. So, you know, who would want to kill this woman, Um, this 46-year-old woman, Jane who
1: was a beloved mother of two? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but can you hear they're doing construction next door?
0: Yes. I can hear okay. it, but it kind of sounded like you were just going uh, to like
1: everything were saying like wrong. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, sorry to you, Jen, and sorry to people at home, but our neighbors are building an addition and they start decided to start this project at the beginning of the quarantine, and it's happened every day since. So uh, so anyway, sorry. I'm not correcting Jen, <laughs> just in my mind. <laughs> yeah. No problem, dude. Okay,
0: Okay, so who would want to kill this 46-year-old woman who was a beloved mother of two she was a successful woman she had a master's in business administration and she was focused and driven and a very happy and friendly person right after she got her master's is when she met bob Bashara. he was dark-haired and charming they said he was often in trouble he was kind of a troublemaker but his father was a lawyer and his father would always intervene and get him out of the trouble So, um, yeah. And apparently in 1967, when Bob was 12 years old, he set his grandmother's house on fire and he was sent to the Howe Academy boarding school. And after a few years there, he graduated with a degree in economic speech communication, but his father ended up just rather than him applying that to making his own living or whatever, or his own career, his father just purchased a building for him to um, own and manage. And that's how he, so he basically became a landlord and that's how he made his
1: uh, living. Oh, that's nice.
0: Yeah. Daddy bought him a building. And so (laughs) dad, if you're listening to this, where's my building? (laughs) Where's my building? So they met in 1983 at a party and they hit it off immediately and in the spring of 1985, they were married. They had a son in 1988 and a daughter in 1992. And throughout the 90s, they were very happy and successful. Um, his rental properties were doing well, and Jane was a very successful senior marketing manager, and they lived in a 3,700-square-foot home in the very affluent community of Gross Point Park. Um, okay. In Michigan, which is very fancy, old money Michigan. Yes. Um, so they were very well liked and active in the community. Bob was president of the Rotary Club, and Jane was very in.
1: Which I don't know what a Rotary Club is. Just, oh, it's like, like a service club for adults. It's like a I you don't just sit is. around and use
0: rotary phones. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I pictured in my head. <laughs> like, how I does think it's this like
1: work? <laughs> I don't, where do I plug this in?
0: <laughs> so, and Jane was very involved with the kids' education. You know, she was a PT mom that was always there. And Bob would even dress up like Santa Claus for their neighbors. He was very well-liked in the community as well. Everybody called him Big Bob. He was Big Bob, man of mouth about town he had a custom license plate that said big bob a mug that said big bob the question again is who would do this to this family the question was answered a few days after the murder when joe gentz walked into the gross point police department and said i killed jane beshera
1: who's joe gentz
0: i will tell you uh, okay, <laughs> so Joe was a very large man. He was six feet seven inches, and some people referred to him as a gentle giant. While externally he looked very intimidating, he suffered a stroke during childbirth, and it caused um, severe learning disabilities. So he had a oh. very low IQ. So he was a big, tough guy. Had like the IQ of a child, mm-hmm. and so. Joe knew Bob Bashera because he was introduced to him by a mutual friend who said, that, you know, I've got this guy Joe. He's down on his luck. He needs a place to rent. And since Bob was a landlord, he gave him a good deal on an apartment in exchange for him doing handiwork for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joe told the police that he killed Jane with his bare hands, but that he did it on the orders of Bob Bashera in exchange for $8,000 and a Cadillac. He said that Bob asked him numerous times to do it in the past, but Joe would just say, no, no, I won't do it. But he just kept asking him, kept asking him. But according to Joe, that night on January 24th, Bob had Joe over at their house cleaning out the garage, and he kept telling Joe that he had a deadline. He kept saying, I have a deadline. I have a deadline. You need to do this. You need to do it. You need to kill her now. You need to kill her like as soon as possible. And so when Jane arrived home, Bob exclaimed, do it, do it now. And according to Joe, Bob pulled out a gun and told him, if you don't kill her now, I'll kill you both. So Joe panicked and hit her in the shoulder, knocking her down. And then he took his foot and pressed it into her windpipe, crushing it and killing her.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. And then Bob, according to Joe, Bob then threw her body into the car with her purse and told Joe to get rid of the car. So police kept Joe Gantz in custody for three days, even though that he admitted he killed Jane. But because of something having to do with evidence and having things in place, they, they couldn't keep him and they had to let him go. So they, he walked out of, it's very strange, but he walked out of the police station three okay. years later. Well, they said that they had his confession but that other than that, they didn't have any physical evidence. And that frankly, the police said that they didn't believe him. Oh, okay. Like, and so Joe contacted the local news department and told them that he wants to tell his stories. Like, why won't they believe me? So on TV, Joe tells everybody that he did it, but he did it because Bob Bechera made him do it. And then Bob Bechera calls the same news station and asks to do an interview, which then, of course, he denies any involvement in his wife's murder. And Bob said that Joe was upset with Bob because he thought that Bob owed him money for a high power bill that he wanted to be reimbursed for and that Bob wouldn't give him the money. And that's why he killed Bob's wife. And so, and that's not the only news interview that Bob did. Apparently they said that he loved the camera and he was always seen giving interviews and holding vigils. And then that's when some people started to see his face on TV and thought like, mm, that's not the Bob that we know. That's not Bob Beshera, the sweet family man, you know, who has been victimized, um, that's not the Bob that we know because it turns out that Bob was leading a double life. Big um, Bob was leading a double life. Big Bob was leading a double life. And so uh, Jane and Bob on the outside looked like they had the perfect family. You know, they were successful pillars of the community and they were for a mm-hmm. time. But apparently when the recession hit and his properties weren't making as much money as they used to, and the kids were ready, getting ready to go to college Bob started to change he went from being this like nice family man to like in his early 50s he you know his energy and his looks were fading and Mm -hmm. not only that but Bob had erectile dysfunction and he wasn't able to perform it's speculated that he wanted to feel like a big man you know he was big man Bob right and now here he is with no money he can't sexually perform he doesn't have good looks anymore he wanted to feel feel like big man bob again so in 2008 right when the couple celebrated their 23rd wedding anniversary bob decided to enter the world of
1: bdsm oh my god yes no i don't not that there's anything wrong with that but it's just like after 23 years of marriage he's like by the way (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've been thinking about entering this world i'd be like what the
0: fuck man (laughs) <laughs> I know. So for those of you that don't know, BDSM is bonded means bondage and discipline, dominance and submission. And their their three main rules are that everything has to be safe, sane, and consensual. Participants set boundaries beforehand and limits are discussed. It's considered, and while it sounds crazy, this community prides himself on being respectful and safe. Right. Um, and I think that's important to say because of things that I'm going to talk about later. And Bob said that his wife was okay with it. He said that she didn't have a sex drive. Not, he never said that he couldn't perform. He said that his wife didn't have a sex drive and that he said that she told him to do whatever he needed to do. And so
1: okay.
0: here he was with this very successful and strong wife was an executive she basically made all the money but in the world of bdsm this new community he was in, he was only attractive to submissive and subservient women that wanted to be dominated Mm -hmm. so he wanted to be the big man and he called himself master bob that was his name so he would attend i know he would attend events and would meet women outside, outside of the events as well. And he even built his own BDSM playground in the basement of one of his rental properties, his own sex dungeon, if you will. But even though he had this dungeon, he would still take women to his home that he shared with Jane unbeknownst to her, of course. So I really fucking doubt that his wife was like, go for it. Said that she said, do whatever you want. Just don't embarrass the family. But I Uh don't think she would have been okay with him bringing women to her home. So, right. And also, Because he was new to the community of BDSM, according to people that they talked to on the podcast on um, Already Gone, it takes many, many years to become an expert or a mentor. People are supposed to be under a mentor's wing for a very long time. But very quickly, Bob said that he was an expert and he would mentor quote unquote, these women. But he would, of course, lie to them and tell them that he was widowed or that he was divorced. He wouldn't say that he didn't tell them that he was married. And that's a big thing because apparently in BDSM, it's all about honesty and safety. So the fact that if he was a mentor and he was lying to them, that's already breaking the rules of the community. Right. So he soon starts an affair with 48-year-old Rachel Gillette, They met on a BDSM website and then they began seeing each other regularly. Apparently one night he picked her up with another woman as the chauffeur and brought her back to his gross point house. They had sex and she used Jane's shower and he made her sleep on the floor. And apparently uh, (gasps) while he slept in Jane's bed. Yeah. And so I don't think Jane would have been okay with any of this. And apparently she was over there many times and she was also seen once driving Jane's Mercedes SUV.
1: And um, okay, yeah,
0: Bob and Rachel fell in love apparently. And they were actually together for several years. And Bob would tell her that they he was going to buy her a home in Grosse And she loved him and trusted him. And he, he was her emergency contact. Um, and but and she was madly in love with him and would do anything for him, but when one day when she Googled him, she found out that he was very much married and she was furious. But Bob swore up and down that he was in the middle of divorcing Jane and that they were just together for the kids, all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. they're, they're going to get divorced really soon. And in February of 2010, Bob gave Rachel a diamond ring, which he tried to put on her left hand, but she refused to wear it on that hand. She took the ring, but yeah, um, (laughs) But she said that she refused to wear it on her engagement hand until he was uh, officially divorced. And by the way, that ring ended up being a family heirloom from Jane's side of the family. Motherfucker. What? So a dog. Yeah. So Jeez. he acted yeah, he acted like he had all this money. Like he was this like a powerful master bub. But Jane was the breadwinner and she was the one that paid for everything in 2011 you know he's still with rachel but he tells rachel that he wants to open up their relationship to a third partner And Rachel did whatever Bob said and she agreed. So he looked online through, you know, different BDSM websites and finally found a potential third partner. But He came upon a woman named Janet Lehman, who was a 52 year old grandmother. Bob told her, of course, that he was in the middle of a divorce, but that he was living in the same house as his wife under the advice of his lawyer. So he's like, I do still live here. Like, this is my home because I'm sure he wanted to show, her all the, like the big fancy house that he lives in but he's only living there because his lawyer said. So, he starts to court this woman Janet Lehman and try to convince her to become their third. And in Christmas of 2011, just the this to show you how Bob woos his women, he sent her a $25 gift card to the Olive Garden. And a leather, (laughs) yeah, Mm. I know. And a leather cord that he told her that she need to wear it on her left wrist until he could come there and tie it around her neck. And then when he did that, then she would officially be his submissive and he told her that he was purchasing a large home for the three of them him rachel and janet in gross point park so janet was like nervous about him coming to visit and she put it off for a while but then on january 12th he finally flew out to oregon where he whined her and dined her. but then when they eventually engaged in sexual activity janet said that he beat her half to death with a whip and he left marks that lasted for months Um, and this is all stuff that she did not consent to. He also engaged in what's called breath play without her consent, which is where he choked her from behind until she quote-unquote, saw stars, she said. She said she was absolutely terrified. Again, this is all against all of the rules of the BDSM community and safe play. So she said that while he was there, she overheard him talking on the phone to someone, saying, what the fuck is wrong with you? Just get it done already. And when he got off the phone, she asked him who he was talking to, and he said he was talking to his maintenance man, Joe Gantz. Here's the thing too, is that house, the house for the the three of them to live in, Uh he was trying to buy that home. He was in the middle of buying it, but he told the agent that he was divorced when he was going to buy it. And he said, even though he was very much still married and he didn't have the cash to pay for the house and he didn't apply for the loan. So when the agent was like, okay, well, what's the financing situation for this house? Bob told them, don't worry. I'm going to have everything in place before the closing. So do you remember how I was saying before? Right. And kept saying, I have a deadline. I have a deadline. So, okay. Yeah. So when Joe Gantz was officially arrested for the murder of James Bechera, because they, they were able to officially arrest him. They needed to evaluate him and see if he was competent to stand trial because of his learning disabilities, And they needed him to stand trial because they needed his account to help prove that Bob was involved. This made Bob very, very nervous. So then he reached out to a man named Steve Tobato, who was the owner of an appliance store that Bob had purchased appliances from probably for his mm-hmm. landlord business. Um, he asked him if he knew anyone who had killed Joe Gens while he was in jail awaiting trial. and oh if he knew anybody who would, yeah, so he asked Steve this like if he could if he could help him find, somebody to kill Joe and to his face, Steve said, yes, but then he immediately called the police to fill them in on everything. And so then they had him wear wire during all of their meetings and they got everything on tape. Bob said that he needed Joe dead before he's declared competent because he didn't want him to testify against him in court. Plain and simple. That he needs him killed and he needs it done ASAP. He told him that he would give him $20,000 for the hit and then he paid him $2,000 down. So later, Bob will go on to say that, oh, I I did this because I wanted revenge for the man that killed my wife, you know. But he never once in any of the tapes said anything about it being revenge. It was all about getting him killed before he can testify. Right. So while the police didn't have him on the murder of Jane yet, they were able to arrest him for hiring a hit. While they could collect all of the evidence and get DNA search warrants and all that stuff, at least they had him in, in jail. But when he finally went to trial for the murder of Jane Bashara, prosecution presented the theory that he wanted to have Jane killed so that he could collect on her life insurance. She also had $800,000 in her 401k. Mm-hmm. So this was on the money that he needed to buy this house that he would then live in with his, his submissive. So it would be like him and all of his women in this big fancy house okay. and he, yeah. And he presented to all of these women that he was this big man about town and that he had all this money and he knew that that was all going to come crashing down. Once they found out that he didn't have money, that it was his wife's, this whole like, world that he had built up of being Master Bob, it would be over. So the only way that he could keep it going was to have Jane killed. Here's the thing, it did come crashing down, because he's a fucking asshole, but right. also his all of his mistresses ended up testifying against him. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So Rachel Gillette testified just about how he was a liar and you know that being with him ruined her life and all this stuff. And then they also had Janet testify, who talked about that he lied to her and that how he he beat her and it scared the crap out of her and that basically he just wanted to inflict pain. Because remember when I said that he couldn't perform sexually? He right. didn't perform sexually with any of these women. It was all just about causing pain. He just, it was all just about like causing these women pain and dominating them. That's what he wanted. And that's what got him off. So uh, the defense's case relied on the fact that there was no direct evidence tying Bob to the murder. And even though that the prosecution was supposed to have Joe Gens' testimony at the last minute, Joe decided that he wasn't going to testify and there's a lot of evidence showing that Bob was having people rough him up in jail telling him you better not testify you better not testify or you're going to be killed and he also harassed even though there was a Rachel had a restraining order against Bob because he was threatening her, he still broke the restraining order time and time again, calling her from jail, sending people to harass her, telling her that she better not testify. He was all over the place trying to control people from right. jail. So luckily, because Joe Gens was not the smartest person, for months and months before the murder, Joe would tell everyone around town about this guy, Bob, trying to hire him to kill his wife. And all of those people testified.
1: Yeah. So they're like,
0: "Yeah, he told me, you know." And so, and then they were also able to prove by cell phone records that Bob was not where he said he was. Um, he said that he was at the Hard Luck Lounge, which is it the bar that he, it was in one of the buildings that he owned. It's actually the bar that was above where his sex dungeon was.
1: Uh-huh. Um,
0: but his cell phone records show that he left the lounge, went to his home, then went back. To the lounge and people commented on how weird his behavior was when he was there because like apparently he was just a real asshole and and everybody thought he was creepy. The guy the men didn't like him at the bar because he was shitty, never paid for his drinks, and he never tipped, and the women didn't like him because he was skeezy. And they said that it was really weird that when he was there because he kept commenting on, hey, tell such and such I'm here and tell them um, I'm just going downstairs for a minute and I'll be right back. And like he was trying to build alibis, but everybody was like, what the fuck? (laughs) In the show, The Deadly Rich, bar owner of uh, the Hard Look Lounge comments on that, how in the middle of the night, him and his wife were watching TV. And when they saw that Jane was missing, he said to himself, son of a bitch, he killed him, and he's going to use us as his alibi. Yeah. Because his
1: behavior was so weird. like Just he so like, right hey, way. no, guys, I'm right here, and now I'm going to go downstairs. Everybody take note of the time. This is normal. Yeah, <laughs> um, and
0: apparently he was, like, doing stuff, like, I'm going to take out the trash, and then I'm going to fix this doorknob, and people like, you never do that shit, dude. Right. Like, what really- is going on? Luckily,
1: Big Big Bob sounds like an idiot.
0: Big Bob is a big, big Mm -hmm. fucking idiot. They had all this other evidence from everybody's testimonies and cell phone records. And they had a number of accounts on him. Solicitation, conspiracy to commit murder, witness tampering, witness intimidation. Just like everything. He's just a fucking idiot and a piece of shit. So he ended up, thankfully... He was convicted on all accounts, which he keeps appealing because of course he's an asshole keeps appealing. But so far the Michigan Supreme court has denied all of his appeals and he is serving a mandatory life sentence in prison. And Joe Gens was sentenced to 17 to 28 years in prison.
1: Dang.
0: And that is the story of the death of Jane Bechera. Poor Jane, man. I know. Oof. God, fucking
1: Bob, man. Fucking Bob. Bob. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? Yeah. I gotta tell you, today's love story is kind of a different one. Selfishly, I've been desperately in need of some creative inspiration, and I found it in this story. And so, like, there's romantic love, but this is mostly about The love of writing but I think that like the lessons from this story can be applied to any kind of passion or dream you might have so whatever your thing is Uh I think you can find inspiration in this story so okay okay so this is about Ben inspiration yeah so, this is about author Ben Fountain. Okay. So, okay, so Ben Fountain grew up in a small town in North Carolina in the 1960s and 70s. His family ended up moving to Raleigh when he was 13. His parents were both educators. His dad, whose name was also Ben, helped integrate the schools as a superintendent in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And his mom, Norma, was a music teacher. And Ben describes them as good old fashioned Southern progressives. And he said they saw that things had to change. And as a 15 year old in Cary, North Carolina, Ben read an Ernest Hemingway short story. And all of a sudden, like a switch just flicked. He soon, he read everything else that Hemingway wrote. He said the fact that the human condition could be presented in like such a simple, clean language in a short story just like stunned him. And he decided he wanted to be a writer. And he wrote throughout high school and throughout his undergrad at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He wasn't, it wasn't his major, but he took creative writing classes and he got Words of encouragement from his instructor. They all thought he was very talented. But this idea of like launching himself as in a creative profession, as a writer directly after graduating, scared him. He was like, this is not something I see anybody else doing. So he went to law school, which really strikes a chord with me. (laughs) And um, he said it struck him as a good place to get ready for the world. So during the first week of law school, he met another student named Sharon Monahan. She was a year above him. She was very smart. And they soon became a couple. And Ben says that even though he wasn't really, he didn't love the law, he said that law school was intellectually revelatory. And he says, it gave me time to grow up. But during law school his creative writing felt by the wayside. He was too busy to write fiction. He was creatively stymied by legal writing. He says, during law school and those first years out, I was stuck in a sequential logical mode of viewing the world. And I totally remember that. I remember being in law school and I, I read a ton, like always read a lot of books. I But I remember in law school being like, I have not read a book in three years. So Sharon ended, graduated a year before Ben, and she got a job in Dallas at a law firm. And when Ben graduated, he followed her. And so he ended up taking a job at a real estate group called Aiken Gump. And he and Sharon actually worked in the same building in downtown Dallas, even though they didn't work for the same place. And Ben loved North Carolina. And he says that leaving was the hardest thing he'd ever done by up to that point. But he's felt like in order to get any kind of clarity in life that he'd have to go, he says, the North Carolina that he grew up in was beautiful and familiar. His family had been there for generations. And he says, I could have been happy in one way, staying here and practicing law and being within this network of family and social connections. I had a ready-made identity. But on another level, I felt like I would go to sleep after a couple years and that I would never wake up for the rest of my life. I would just drift through this fog. Aww. And so he went to Dallas. And at first he thought, OK, this is pretty similar to North Carolina. But when he got there, he found that Texas was also uniquely Texas, and it was the 1980s. And what was most jarring to him was that money, just this like materialism and conspicuous consumption, was part of the culture there. He says the lawyers he knew growing up taught him that you stand for certain things, you work for certain things, and money is not the main thing. But he got to Dallas and money was just in his face. That's like the, everyone yeah. asked, like, how much do you make? There were, would be lists of who is the top richest people in every city. And it was just so foreign to him. But Sharon had a good job. He had a good job. They settled into their life. In 1985, the two got married. And then in April of 1987, they had a baby. And after four months of maternity leave, Sharon was back to work. And she was thriving at work. That same year she had a baby, she actually made partner at her law firm, which is, like, unheard of. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But as a family, they felt like the balance was off. Sharon says that they would take their son to daycare, and their schedules just became unworkable. Like, they would drive in together. One of us would take him to daycare. The other one would go to work. And then the other one would pick him up. And then somewhere around 8 o'clock at night, they would, you know, you can imagine it. I mean, eight o'clock at night, they'd have the kid would be in bed. We haven't even eaten anything yet. And they were like, this is just the beginning. So they did this for about a month or two. And Ben was just like, I don't know how people do this. And they both kind of agreed that continuing at the pace they were going was going to make them all miserable. So Ben asked Sharon if she wanted to stay at home. And Sharon was like, no. No. (laughs) I don't. She's like, I "I love our kid, but I love my work and I'm thriving there. And unsurprisingly, Ben was not happy in his job. He'd been practicing law for five years. He was 30 years old, but he'd never let go of his dream of of becoming a writer. Mm -hmm. And he says that he realized I'd probably never have any peace in myself if I didn't make a deadly serious attempt to devote myself to writing fiction. But it wasn't an easy decision. He says, I was tremendously apprehensive. I felt like I'd stepped off a cliff and I didn't know if the parachute was going to open. Nobody wants to waste their life. And I was doing well at the practice of law. I could have had a good career. And my parents were very proud of me. My dad was so proud of me. It was crazy. But Sharon, to Sharon, the switch seemed logical. She was like, You have something besides practicing law that you want to do. So why don't we just do daycare in the morning and you can write and then you'll take care of the baby and do the housework in the afternoon. And he was like, oh, okay, Yeah. So (laughs) so that's what they did. Sharon would take their son to daycare and Ben would start writing at seven in the morning. He would write every day until lunchtime. And then he'd lie down on the floor for 20 minutes and rest his mind, and then he'd go to work for another few hours, and then he'd pick up his kid and do the household chores and the shopping and everything. But the thing is, is that he went into this, but he didn't really know anything about writing. Before he quit his job to become a writer, the only thing he'd ever published was a law review article. He'd taken a handful of writing classes in undergrad, but that was it. But he had this like conviction and discipline. And in the first year, he actually sold two stories. And Wow. And so I don't think I gave where I got this information with, from. But this is part of this. Part of my information comes from a really famous article by Malcolm Gladwell um, in The New Yorker called Late Bloomers. And another magazine called D Magazine, an article by Zach Crane, Dallas Daily News, draftbearingtree.com So in the Malcolm Gladwell article, this is how he described Ben's path as a writer. So he sold those two articles, and then he wrote a novel. He decided it wasn't very good. He ended up putting it in a drawer. And then came what he describes as his dark period. And he adjusted his expectations and started again. He got a short story published in Harper's. A New York literary agent saw it and signed him up. He put together a collection of short stories titled Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, and Echo, which is a HarperCollins imprint, published it. The reviews were sensational. The Times Book Review called it heartbreaking. It won a Hemingway Fountain Pen Award. It was named number one book sense pick. It made major regional bestsellers list and was named one of the best books of the year by a ton of newspapers, Ben Fountain's rise sounds like a familiar story. The young man from the provinces suddenly takes the literary world by storm. But Ben Fountain's success was far from sudden. He quit his job at Aiken Gump in 1988. For every story he published in those early years, he had at least 30 rejections. The novel that he put away in the drawer took him four years. The dark period lasted for the entire second half of the 1990s. His breakthrough with Brief Encounters came in 2006, 18 years after he first sat down to write at his kitchen table. The young writer from the provinces took the literary world by storm at age 48. So this... Profile of Ben is, like I said, is from this article about late bloomers. And- I love stories about late
0: bloomers. Yes. the older
1: I get, the more I love to hear Yes. (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell says, on the road to achievement, the late bloomer will resemble a failure. While the late bloomer is revising and despairing and changing court and slashing canvases to ribbons months after months or years, what he or she produces will look like the kind of thing produced by the artist who will never bloom at all. Prodigies are easy. They advertise their genius from the get-go. Late bloomers are hard. They require forbearance and blind faith. Okay, so then the first couple years of writing were hard. Ben says especially in the first couple years of writing, there was this powerful sense of self-indulgence and delusion. Why would anyone want to read what I was writing? Because what I was writing was really, really bad. In this society, there's so much emphasis placed on being productive and so much of your identity is bound up in what you do for a living, how you make money, what you can buy. By claiming that you're a writer or trying to self your, set yourself up as devoted to something like writing, you're immediately step out of the mainstream. So, you know, he's going through this. He's getting, he has a little bit of validation, but he is mostly just, it's like the first years of being a comedian where you're like, I'm a comedian, buddy. Am I a comedian? You know, it's like you're learning yeah. as you go and you're just you have to you, just have this
0: Foster syndrome.
1: Yeah, you have to have this yeah. faith in yourself. I am gonna get better of this. I am gonna do it. So he says, My only thing I could do was keep writing, and hopefully at some point I'd have some kind of measurable success. But then he says, even after a while, that left me. And I just kind of reconciled himself. He reconciled himself with the notion that even if he didn't ever have any kind of success, I am going to keep writing. So he was like, I felt like it was worthwhile. I felt like I was getting better. And I got a lot of pleasure out of it. And even if I had never had any kind of real world success, well, I could live with that. And the reason that he could do all of this is because he had a partner who believed in him. And Sharon says, when Ben first took off, we talked generally like, well, what if we, what if this doesn't work? And Sharon told him, give it 10 years. And to her, like, that didn't seem unreasonable. She was like, it takes a while to decide whether you're good or something or not. And when 10 years became 12 and 14 and then 16, she never stopped believing in him because even during the long stretch, when Ben published nothing at all, she said she was confident that he was getting better. And he says that when he sat down to write his first story, he was like, I knew what it was going to be about. And then the first day, it flowed out of him. And then the second day, he completely freaked out because he realized he was like, I don't know how to describe things. Like, I know where the story's going, but I don't know how to like describe basic things like a building, a room, a facade, a haircut. So mm-hmm. he started building, collecting articles on things he was interested in and going out and experiencing things so that he could write about it. And one of those things he got interested in was Haiti. And he decided in order to capture its essence that he was going to need to go there. And he actually ended up going to Haiti 30 times. Wow. And a lot of his short stories that got so much acclaim are mostly set there. But And Sharon, and some people, you know, you could imagine like – if your partner, you're working, your partner was, I'm going to go to a yeah. 30 times, right? But she was just completely on board. She was like, I can't imagine writing a novel from a place I haven't at least visited. And Ben knew oh. he had a good. He says, Sharon never once brought up money. Not once. Never. He says, I never felt any pressure for her from her. Not covert. Not even implied. And so after Ben published this first book of short story that got so much acclaim, he was profiled in this article by Malcolm Gladwell. And he became, you know, this hero to like dreamers like me who were like, you know, started creative pursuits later in life, wondering if success would come or if it was important. And this article actually came out in 2008, which was like right when I started comedy. And I was working as a lawyer and I was miserable. And I also had a husband who was cool with me pursuing my dream of doing whatever I wanted. And in the article... Malcolm Gladwell mentions that Ben Fountain is working on a novel, and that it was that it was coming late. But what Gladwell didn't know at the time, or didn't write, was that the reason the book was late was because Ben was actually struggling with it. He was working on this novel. He had this Malcolm Gladwell article that made him famous, and the, the book he'd been working on for more than six years. All of a sudden, his editor was like, "I'm not going to publish it." <gasps> Why? So, well, she just was like, it's not good enough. She was like, you don't do something as amazing as the as what you came out and have Malcolm Gladwell write about you in The New Yorker and then end up putting out something that you don't think is your best work. Yeah. And so it was a blow. He says, like, something like that in a way is a writer's worst nightmare. You work on a book for year of, years and years – But nothing comes comes of it i think that's part of the psychological burden of trying to write a novel but you know the worst thing happened and a day or two later i realized i'm still here it's not like they've withdrawn my permission to write so he said he just felt this feeling of like fuck it i'm just gonna keep going (laughs) i can keep writing i want to keep writing so i'll keep writing so pretty much right away he sat down and started writing again and about a year later, he turned in the first 100 pages or so of what would become the book Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is a novel that follows a young soldier and his squad as they go through this crazy day at, the, at a Texas stadium. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. The book was published in 2012. It won the National Books Critics Circle Award for fiction. And it was a finalist for the 2012 National Book Award. And then in 2018... Wow. Ben published a nonfiction book called beautiful country burn again about the 2016 election. And wow, yeah. And then what he knows and what I think is so amazing is that he says like, none of this was possible without Sharon in his article, Malcolm Gladwell said, we'd like to think that mundane matters like loyalty, steadfastness, And the willingness to keep writing checks to support what looks like failure have nothing to do with something as rarefied as genius. But sometimes genius is anything but rarefied. Sometimes it's just the thing that emerges after 20 years of working at your kitchen table. Dude, that is like, oh, sorry. Oh no, that's okay. Sorry. I did pause like that was the end. It's almost the end. (laughs) And when he was asked if the Malcolm Gladwell article put pressure on him, he says, no, he said, Ben says, if there was any inclination to think that I was somehow over the hump because of that article, all I had to do was sit down the next day and try to write and realize that none of the attention makes it easier to get the words on the page. But he does say that he is grateful for the article because it highlighted the sacrifice of his wife. He says, the article was really nice and it gave my wife her due. She was really the real hero of the article and in reality. And that's it.
0: <laughs> wow. I mean, what a lesson on hard work and determination and perseverance. I mean, twenty years and even writing that one book for six years and then having it not published, but then he just kept at it. Yeah. Wow, that's really amazing. And it his is wife. amazing. It is wonderful for supporting. I don't I don't know that I would have done that. I mean I would like to think that I would, but to be honest, like if Zach went to Haiti 30 times and there was no book, I would be like, who is in Haiti that you keep? (laughs) Why don't you go marry her then?
1: Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I just, I love that story. It gives me inspiration. And I also, I love the idea of like deciding that something is worth it just for the practice in itself. Deciding that you enjoy writing, or you enjoy comedy, or you enjoy making art, whatever you you enjoy doing taxes like so much that even if (laughs) you don't have this huge success, it's worthwhile to spend your life pursuing it. For me, I'm like that's really what I need to hear. Not that when I turn 48, I'm going to have sudden success, you know, or like a big you know a big breakthrough. But even if I don't, to decide if it whatever creative pursuit the podcast or whatever is worth it just on its own without yeah. yeah without the success like that's the decision you have to make and then if the success comes it comes but if you enjoy what you're doing and it's fulfilling to you in in other ways then it's worth it yeah right well said thank you well said jen sally are you ready to do something dumb and something we love Sure,
0: I will start. Okay. Um, I'm going to say it fast so that I don't get too upset. But this week was dumb. Something dumb is that I did have to put my dog down. I'm sorry. I know. I am sorry. He was a wonderful dog. I had him for 16 years. And he was the best dog I could ask for. But it was his time. So we... Uh, had um, this wonderful company. It's called Lap of Love. They come over and they help your dog to pass to the other side, and um, we'll miss him. Yeah. But the thing that's um great, the thing that I love is Sally was so wonderful, and she sent me some vegan and gluten free food. <laughs> And my friend Kristen sent me, gave me some flowers. So it's like I'm just grateful for good friends on hard days.
1: But um, and I'm grateful, grateful for Miles because he was a wonderful dog. I am so I, I don't think I realized that you that you had had him for so long that you had had him before you got married, before you had kids. Like he was,
0: oh yeah, he was just like he It was just he was my baby. It was just me and him. And I got him when I was still dating Zach, my husband, but I lived alone and it was just me and him in an apartment, me and Miles. And so, yeah, he's been through it all. So it's just an adjustment. (laughs) Yeah. Just the last few days. But um, we'll get through it. It'll be fine.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm so so sorry. And he was... Just so sweet and such such a little goof <laughs> like i just loved seeing him walking around your house
0: i know he was his- he's a
1: very odd looking little guy
0: yeah and <laughs> <laughs> a big big we used to say that his head looked like a chinese dragon uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but on like a tiny little corgi body i'll post a picture but yeah he's a
1: wonderful dog yeah i'm really sorry i know it was a really hard week and and i'm sorry I wanted to say that something dumb is I'm so sorry about miles and I'm just sorry for you guys that you're going through that. And, um, and also I think like as a, as a community, as a country that we're all mourning the yes. murder of George Floyd and on top of Ahmaud Arbery and, and, uh, and every, and names and names and names. Like I, it's, yeah, it's just very heavy and heartbreaking and not surprising, which is even more heartbreaking. And yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that that we're outraged and, and mourning. And I also wanted to say that my instinct, I think, as like a privileged white person is to duck my head, you know, and just be like, yeah. I don't want to hear about this. I want to live in my own little bubble where this is not happening. But that's not okay. Like we got how we need to take action. We especially as white people um, and for our white listeners, need to take action. And so I know you guys all know where where to find resources, but just a couple: donate to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, to the North Star Collective. I'll put I'll post these. You can also sign petitions. You can text Floyd to five five one five six to sign a petition. And you can educate yourself. Some books that you can read that you can learn as a white person is re- White Fragility, Waking Up White. Um, so you want to talk about race? Those are just a couple. There's are lots and lots of resources out there. So let's educate ourselves. I, as much as anybody need to do that to figure out what I can do to do more and to be a better ally. So, so that's uh, dumb beyond dumb. We're really real heavy on the dumb this week. I know, but I'm really, really,
0: really glad that you're talking about this um, because it's, the most important it's like I almost didn't want to even like bring up miles because I wanted to do the same thing for something Dub. so I'm right. not, I'm glad that you're doing it I, yeah it's very very important and it, it needs to stop and we have to take action it's
1: we can't just be we can't just be okay with this we cannot yeah, we can't just be silent and yes. or post memes. So the thing I love—great things are still happening—and one of those things that I really love is one of my very best friends, Sam Evans. Um, he's oh, a comedian. Sam who,
0: Evans.
1: If, yeah. So if you had, if you guys came to um, our second Dumb Love comedy show, he was on that, and he has a new album that came out um, on Friday called Sweet Baby Boy, and it is. So good, you guys. He's so funny. He is one of those people that I I feel like people are going to discover him and be like, where did this guy come from? You know, like what what has he been doing? (laughs) Because he's just been like keeping his head down and working and writing. And he writes so much. He's so funny. Um, You can find his album. It's on iTunes and Amazon. And I'm just so proud of him and happy for him and in awe of him and jealous of him as a comedian because he's so good. So go get that. Go get Sam Evans and and have a little go get Sam Evans. Go get him. Uh-huh. Go get that boy. Go get that Sam Evans. <laughs> and yeah, and and take a take an hour break from the madness and uh, and the sadness. Okay, you guys. I think that's that's the end of our episode. That'll do it. That'll, that'll do, do a very, it. Very, very heavy episode. <laughs> <laughs> that'll do, Jen. I think that'll do. A um, very special episode of Jumbo.
0: <laughs> uh, Thank you guys so much for everything. Thank you for listening and stay inside and do something dumb for love.